I think the reason why we call it butting heads is because conflicts are in the head and connections in the heart and in the gut. And so that's mm -hmm. really my intention is to get people out of their heads and into their hearts because that's where the understanding happens. Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Autry, a conflict transformation educator and catalyst. And you are listening to Fractal Friends, the podcast where we explore our self-similarity across our diversity. We all have a role to play in the whole, and the purpose of this show is to interview people with interesting perspectives on the world and see what it is that we can learn from each other. Today's guest is Katharina Dress. Katharina is a mediator, facilitator, coach, and trainer. Her business is called Aging in Harmony. Katharina specializes in supporting families that are struggling with issues related to aging parents and family members. She helps people have challenging conversations with elder family members, adult children, home caregivers, or aging service providers. She can also help families who have conflicts about aging-related concerns and decisions. In today's show, we talk about some of her experiences growing up in Cold War Germany and the different experiences that she has developing connections with people in East Germany and discovering their common humanity. We also talk about her work in California, working with the peace movement to protest uh, the spread and proliferations of nuclear weapons. And then we talk about her discovery of mediation and compassionate communication and the positive impacts that it has had on her life and also on the lives of others. And of course, we talk about the wisdom that she's gained from working with families, with aging family members. Some interesting parts are her strategies of communicating with people who have dementia or memory loss. And we talk about the vital importance of having important and sometimes difficult conversations before it's too late. Thank you for listening to Fractal Friends. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. And come visit fractalfriends.us to get more information about Katharina and the things we discuss here. If you think that your family could use support around topics of aging, Katharina's website is aginginharmony.com. If you'd like to learn more about my work as a consultant, trainer, and facilitator in transforming conflicts in your life, come to duncanautry.com. At both pages, you can schedule a complimentary half-hour call where we can help you figure out the next steps towards effective communication and thriving relationships. This conversation was recorded in February of 2019. Please enjoy this conversation with Katharina Dress. Katharina, just as people are starting to join us right now, I just want to say I'm like, really grateful for you to be join doing this with you. Well, thank you for doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, knew you first as a, you know, we're in a professional context, and it's been really great to become friends with you. It's just also been really great to just like learn from you. Like, I feel like there's like as mediators together, it's been really nice to have someone to, you know, just to share these experiences with and to, and to learn from and Oftentimes I'll be doing something and I'll be like trying to find like some tools that you taught me and I'll, you've really touched how I do my work. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. And so what I was just, first of all, I would just like to start out with, I know that you are an, an elder care mediator and that you do work with aging families, but I wonder if you could do just a small framing of sort of what your work is as a mediator. Mm. Well, you know, most of us knows either have the experience in our own lives or know somebody whose parents are aging and there are some issues around it. Either the parents don't want to talk to the kids about their needs are moving forward 
or the kids don't want to talk to the parents because they think if they talk about aging, it'll happen. (laughs) (laughs) And so I basically, people bring me in to help facilitate those difficult conversations on the journey of aging and come up with plans that work for everyone involved. I think it's so important. One of the things we're talking about is like one family at a time here. And there's just a way that, you know, the families, in my experience, families are such an interesting engine, you know, for for conflict. There are these places where we kind of have to interact with these people. We're in a relationship and they might be really different than us or there might be really different ways of seeing things. There's also like a ton of history, right? Of course, there's like that way that like the history that we carry with us like really deeply influences who we are in the world. And when the people who we're in the conflict with are the same people who have been that influence, it seems like that there could be like some real interesting cycles that people get into. Or Yeah, I think we all know that in general, the people we are the closest with in our lives are the most difficult to deal with because we care the most. And then on top of that, in the kind of work I do, there are the generational differences, which, you know, as I've been becoming an elder mediator and having more experience as in that field, I'm learning more and more about aging and how different cohorts, age cohorts, just really were socialized at a different time and see the world differently and experience the world differently and how that comes together with the dynamics of that particular family. And that's what makes it so different. Your journey, you know, to get to like the interpersonal mediation, to the family mediation, like started by having some concern or just awareness of sort of much larger scale conflicts. And I just would, I would love to sort of hear a little bit about like what helped you start wanting to be this bridge across differences. Yeah, um, there've been kind of four distinctly different phases in my life and my relationship to conflict and peace. And the first one was actually a a very formative experience I had when I was in high school in 1972. I had the opportunity to go on a camping trip to Eastern Europe. That was like the first year that was even possible for people from the West to do that. was virtually unheard of. Because it was so unusual, there were no campgrounds, separate campgrounds for people from the West yet. So we were camping together with um, people from all kinds of Eastern European countries. And I'm originally, I was raised, born and raised in Germany. And so um, I speak German, obviously. And uh, me and my friends would tag along with the East Germans because they spoke Russian and they understood the system so that in each of the different Eastern European countries we we visited, I think there were seven, we tagged along with them and learned the lay of the land from them. And in the process, I had the opportunity to meet East Germans for the first time in my life and East Germans who were my age. And what I learned was that they were just like me and they wanted the same thing like I did and we had very similar thoughts about what was better or worse about their system as opposed to our system you know we both saw advantages and disadvantages in both systems political systems and the main thing they were envying us for was that we could travel and visit them and they would like to be able to travel and visit us and they said they would be sure they would go home 
because they preferred the advantages of their system at the end of the day. And what I learned from that is, number one, that these whole tensions between the East and the West didn't make any sense to me. And, you know, creating peace beyond that divide, that major divide that kept the whole world in fear for so long, became important to me. Um, in the 80s, when I first moved to California, I got very involved in the peace movement. And our goal was, you know, to get past that divide between the East and the West and not let us, you know, destroy the world in a nuclear war, which seemed a very real possibility at the time. I wanted to capture something about this. So behind this idea of, of them saying, like, yeah, we would go across, but we would come back, and we would like to be able to be the freedom of movement, but part of the reason why like that freedom of movement wasn't happening and why it was so rare for you to even go camping in Eastern Europe and why you would even think that there would be Western European and Eastern European campsites, that those would be segregated is because that's part of how this that system worked. It was like, as long as these people don't talk to each other and as long as they don't see that each other are humans and like really just see that they're regular people, then we can turn them into boogeymen right. in a way. And it worked that way, of course, on both sides. Yeah, and it's I just really kind of capture that because there's so many different ways that we separate ourselves from each other, mm -hmm. right? And there's ways that institutions are holding us apart, but then there's also ways that we're self-segregating in this world. Um, you know, current politics in these days are just noticing how the United States organizes itself into people who are over here and people who are over here, and we think this way, and those people over there think that way, and, and it's not comfortable to even be in those other places, but what were some of the interactions that helped you, like, what was the surprise about it? Like, what was... The surprise was that, number one, we're so the same, mm -hmm. you know? Even though we grew up in these different systems, you know, once we're on the campground, we like to do the same things. <laughs> and, and the other surprise was that I already knew that I was critical of the capitalist system. The surprise was that they were also critical of their own system, you know, so that we both agreed that there's advantages and disadvantages to both system, and we would like to create a world that realizes the best of both. Mm -hmm. Right. That's actually this interesting advantage to sort of have not everyone be like totally buying into their whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so 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 then when you got into the doing the like trying to prevent this nuclear war and doing that peace work, what did that work look like? And you know, how did that? What was was that about trying to figure out how to bridge some of these like these things? So that or um, not so directly. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was an or organizer for a lot of big demonstrations and actions. And what I learned there, the, the organizations I was part, on, uh, part of were all um, very decentralized and uh, had a non-hierarchical uh, decision-making structure, very consensus-based. And so I learned how that works and saw in action how we can make decisions on the smallest level. We had affinity groups and then have councils of representatives from affinity groups and then have that, you know, scale up towards, you know, the movement within the whole country. I learned how how consensus works and that it actually works mm -hmm. uh, and that it actually with with the necessary training and skills can be reached in a very reasonable amount of time. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's something I've brought into 
all my life work, and it certainly comes in handy now in my work as a mediator. Seeing in action how decision-making structures could work from the bottom up rather than from the top down was really an important learning for me. One of the things that, that I don't know I've been thinking about, like democracy and representative democracy is kind of having its struggles lately, and mm-hmm. or at least just people are frustrated with who's representing them at certain times. And the, like, wow, like getting democracy like back to the people so that people are able to make choices about the things that are actually impacting their lives and actually be able to participate in that. Like, first of all, that's possible and it seems really important. It's what I think also about cool about consensus is like there's not a winner or loser in it. And I think that's it's really easy to try to solve political things by just being like, let's just have someone win and someone lose. But that's never a durable solution. Right. Yeah. It always comes back to bite you later mm-hmm. because somebody is resentful. Yeah. I also like think it's interesting to recognize that like the tools are there, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we actually do have the skills to do this. We can learn how to do this. It's something that I think as mediators we're kind of always trying to tell people or it is like it's this like we we actually have the tools to help you have this conversation. We pretty much know it can work if you want to really try to do it. And even though maybe people haven't seen consensus work or people haven't seen mediation work, um, it's actually like a learnable skill. Yeah, it is. You know, just like in a conversation, like in a family, we talked at the beginning that families maybe are the hardest in a lot of ways. Just like in a family, it's like that on every level that if you put in the time and effort to talk to each other and listen to each other at the start, it may take you a little longer to come to a decision, but then the implementation and everything that happens after that is so much more efficient and smoother um, that it's totally worth it to put in the time and effort, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a good one too. It's a w- um, somehow yeah with mediation. It's like I don't know if this is worth our time to engage in this, and it's like, well, how long will it take if you don't actually put the effort into it? People tell people we're going to take a three-hour meeting. People think that feels like forever, but then how many days or years of ineffective communication could that take? Yeah, yeah that's right, and. If we don't have these conversations as early as possible, we're going to have them in a time of crisis. And if we have to make decisions in a time of crisis, number one, it's the worst possible times in terms of being highly emotional anyway. Mm -hmm. And number two, we don't have any time then. So then we have to make quick decisions, and they may not be the best decisions. Like, for instance, if somebody needs to move from living alone into a senior community at a time of crisis, they can't shop around and wait around till they have a place, a space open in their preferred place. And so it may not be as close as they would like. It may not be as cost effective as I would like. That's just one example. And it's like that with everything. I think when we were getting ready, you mentioned something about how like families aren't really talking about aging because they feel like if they just don't talk about it maybe it won't happen and that's interesting right like how how can we like because it's actually something we know will happen for sure or we hope it will and um yeah so like these are conversations you could have ahead of time before there's a problem yeah and and i see 
that happening more and more. I think as my generation uh, ages, we're going to do it differently than the previous generation. We are going to be more proactive. We are going to talk to our children more early on um, if we have children. And if we don't have children, then we're more intentional about building community and intentional family because we know that we're going to need each other as we grow older. So I, I see changes in, in, that, in the way we deal with it that make me feel hopeful. I also understand that because um, I'm thinking about this, this Eastern Western European mm-hmm. thing. And what if we recognized earlier on, you know, like, hey, we're going to grow old together. Right. Like this is this is all we're all here together. We're in a family together. And it's interesting how that's also felt surprising. Right. Like like that people that that there was an illusion that maybe we can don't have to figure out how to get along. We don't have to prepare for these. That's actually one of the things um, that's a cultural difference. I think here in the U.S., you know, aging is much more and dying. Uh, is much more of a taboo subject than in some other cultures. Um, I remember, I'm, I'm the youngest of six children. My oldest sister is 20 years older. So uh, I remember, um, so my parents were pretty old when I was born. <laughs> and I remember when I was little, my mom would talk about who would like to get what when they're not around anymore like the nice china or the nice silver or the nice crystal or whatever it was, right? And jewelry, pieces of jewelry too. And I remember that there was one particular piece of crystal vase that I really, really liked. And I got to put a sticker on it with my name on it. So much, much later, I mean, God, probably almost 40 years later when my mom did pass, I got that, and it had the sticker on it in my childhood handwriting when I just had learned writing. <laughs> so talk I grew about... up in a culture where, you know, we talked about it, and I, I, that, I think that might have been one of the reasons that I was motivated to, to go into this, you know, as my encore career kind of, because I see that that's not happening here, and I see how much pain it causes. <sighs> I just like love how great an example of like pre 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 preventative conflict resolution that is right because I'm sure that's a theme where people like whole families falling apart because someone wanted the crystal vase and everyone always knew that was my favorite vase since I was a kid don't you remember and and no never noticed you know or whatever yeah that's interesting that's actually one of you know. In elder mediation, people and other kinds of mediation, I imagine it's not that different. Um, people agree to just one session at a time, but it may take more than one. And the longest I've ever worked with a family was six sessions. They came to me months after mom passed because they set a deadline. It took them six sessions to learn the tools that I taught them that then they still hadn't made all decisions, but they knew how to do it. Okay, if we can anticipate that these things are going to happen, like, and learning, as you said, like learning the skills when you're like in the crisis, when you're actually trying to like go through the house is like a lot and trying to figure it all in a year. It makes me wonder like who were like, what 
of what kind of tips could you have offered? Like what could these people have done to have not gotten so stuck? Cause it seems like it's also such a tragic time to be having your family fall apart. Right. Yeah. Like it's like mom's passing. Wouldn't it be great if we could all just hold each other and just grieve and be each other's safe spaces. Yeah. I think that's the main tip is have these conversations early Nobody's going to die any sooner because you have the conversation. But you'll be able to serve your aging loved one much better at the end of their life when you know what they want, how they want to be treated, how they want to be remembered, what they want to be their legacy. And they are, it's going to be easier for them too to go through that if they know what their children would want and to what degree their children want to be involved and what's important to their children at that time of their life. It's going to make it easier for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. So the sooner the better is my philosophy. Yeah, that could be like a real gift too, right? To be like, let's have a hard conversation when we're all our heads are together and we're all here. And so that when we're having the hard time, we can have the easy conversations. And you are so right. You know, when somebody is near the end of their days or has already passed, everybody is grieving, you know, and much more experienced elder mediator than I am. Uh, I've assisted him in a training once. And the first thing he said was elder mediation is grief work. And that putting it that succinctly, you know, I hadn't thought of it in that way before, but it is so true. You know, people are grieving. They don't start grieving once somebody passes. They start grieving once they realize, you know, signs of aging in their loved ones and have to think about that they're not going to be around forever. Grief is kind of a, like a topic that's come up here before as this, like, almost this, like, necessary process of change, right? And, and like, I know also grieving something we don't do very well in our society either right that's like it's always another challenge and it's not a fun feeling and i guess how does the grief like impact it but then also like what does the grief look like like you know as people are how does that show up grief looks differently for each person Mm -hmm. you know for some people they become very emotional some people shut off the emotions completely and just want to get things done some people don't show any signs of grieving while things need to be taken care of and then they fall apart way 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 later it's really really different and and also for some people it it's not a very long process and for some people it can take years the people who take longer often are faced with family members or other friends who say you know it's been a year can't you get over it already and you just don't know Mm -hmm. and it's you know all about accepting that everybody has to grieve in their own way and give them space to do that i want to go back and sort of pick up a thread from from your from your story so Mm -hmm. you know there's this you know being exposed across this like really powerful iron curtain cold war divide Mm-hmm. And then there's coming to America and, and the United States and, and doing this sort of anti-nuclear proliferation, trying to make peace in the world so that the split doesn't rip us apart. And then eventually that split comes down. In 89, the wall falls down. 
um, right after the earthquake in San Francisco. And, and so I, it makes me feel like that there's like this family sort of coming together and being like, oh my God, what have we been doing for the last 40 years or 30 years? And did it feel like there's parallels as, as you like saw like the like reunification and like, it seems that there must be some grief in that celebration, of course, but yeah. yeah like. And, um, you know, that was actually such an exciting event for me that I decided to move back to Germany for a while. And initially there was a real honeymoon phase going on there. People really enjoyed visiting each other and learning about each other and trying to live with each other. But that honeymoon phase didn't last very long because eventually people went back to valuing the values that they grew up with in their system more, right? So the, the East Germans experienced the West Germans as isolated and cold and competitive and the West Germans experienced the East Germans as you know having no initiative and not being in charge of their own destiny and <laughs> just wanting handouts from the rich West <laughs> and not you know doing their own part of the work and so eventually that that became a very difficult and painful process and um, um, there's still differences you know, to this day, you know, not with the young generation that grew up after all that, you know, a lot of East Germans went to study, went to college in the West, and, and I know a lot of West Germans who went to college in the East, and so that generation, you know, for them, it's different, but, but I would say everybody who was 30 or older at the time of reunification, there's gonna be a difference forever, and it's it's not easy. And um, yeah, I I got to experience that kind of firsthand because what I did after I moved there was uh, initially I was a, a student services administrator uh, for an American study abroad program that we and the director basically built from the ground up in East Berlin when, you know, students were housed in the eastern part of the city, of course, in, in apartments where people didn't have phones and these American parents could not imagine that their kids would be in a house where they couldn't call them. Of course, this was before everybody had cell phones. <laughs> so um, so I, I got to see that how it went from the excited phase to the difficult feeling phase firsthand. And then after that job, I actually developed my own program. It was an intercultural summer, a community service summer program where young people from the United States and other English speaking countries, Britain, you know, and Canada, some Australians, uh, I recruited them to live in East German villages for four weeks at a time and create cultural activities for and with the children and youth there to kind of bring the world to them and um, kind of bridge that gap. And, uh, and I did that work for over 10 years. And that was really, really rewarding, bringing my two worlds together in a way. What were some of the... like? 
how were those discoveries that happened similar or different to the ones that you experienced when you were a child? Or, you know, the teenager that was oh, also visiting yeah. that line, crossing that line? Huh. That's an interesting question. I never thought of it uh, that way. I, I think that the students I was leading there uh, had made inst- similar discoveries to mm-hmm. the ones I did. And, and some of them, you know, I'm following on Facebook now, and they are, you know, um, American diplomats in Eastern European countries and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so um, I, I really think that, that they made some of the same discoveries and, and had a lot of surprises, and their lives were never the same. Well, congratulations. <laughs> That's like, it's to like really see like the ripple out of, of something. Yeah, it's just also just makes me think just work with you. It's like so important. And, and yeah, or all the generations, right? And it's interesting because like on one hand, you can picture how like you go right across there and you the assumption was that we're different. And then it's a surprise was that we're similar. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think that the family is kind of almost the opposite. <laughs> like a little bit where it's like there's this assumption that we're supposed to be similar and then it's frustrating that we're so different i don't know if that's if that works but um but then of course the things they have in common you know are really there but it's like it's almost like just depending on where you stand you're like noticing a different aspect of it and different kind of challenge that is a good point and i i think it is part of my job to to help the family members see and understand how they really are similar underneath their differences. Right. And that the differences are normal. That different, you know, age groups just are different by nature. And that it's not anybody's fault in that particular nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Right. So like normalizing the differences. like yeah. So that then they can come back to... Not just like their common Joneses or common, you know, like whatever their family are, but also the common humanity there that's just, um, that does cut across generations. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, and, and, you know, we, I think we are influenced by the values that we grew up in. And, you know, my parents certainly had very different political leanings than I do, but, I can see how the the values underneath are really very similar and just the strategies I use to to realize those values in the world are very different than what they would have done. For example, my parents, this is embarrassing to say, Oops. but my parents were supporters of apartheid in South Africa and I actually had at one point three siblings who lived there and and then two, and I, I actually visited South Africa in 1973. Wow. At the height of apartheid, you know. And it was a very similar experience to the, the trip to Eastern Europe in that I met a lot of younger people who were saying, white younger people. I didn't obviously didn't have much opportunity to meet black younger people. But white younger people saying we realize the system isn't really sustainable and and when we are in charge 
you know, it'll change. And that is eventually what happened. And I think South Africa did a much better job than Germany did in making a conscious effort to heal, you know, and devising a whole system of truth and reconciliation, which, you know, I wish Germany would have been as wise. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, like, kind of what, what did happen? I mean, like, I, it's, it's interesting. I don't have a sense of what, what intentions there were around that. I mean, like, the way I imagine it historically, and this is, you know, I don't know, from school or books, I don't, like, but I'm imagining, um, Especially one of my earliest memories, by the way, as like it was the Berlin Wall coming down, and my parents being like, "This is important," and being like, "Okay, try to remember this." And mm-hmm. um, but my like understanding is that like, and maybe that's just because I'm coming from the, the West, but that there was like a just absorption of like the East into the West in a certain way that that was like that it didn't sound like it was like a meeting of two worlds, but that there was like. I don't know, like there's this assumption that one was good and one was bad. But again, I know that that's coming from the capitalist side. Of yeah, it, no, and, and what you're saying is legally actually true for what happened in Germany mm. because the West German constitution was written in such a way that the, the division of the country was never officially recognized. Oh. So it was written in such a way that whenever East Germany wanted to come home into the fatherland, it could do so. Wow. <laughs> and after the fall of the wall, East Germans essentially had a choice in, because they did have initially free East German so elections, right, before reunification. And they essentially had a choice whether they wanted to uh, get reunite or i should say unite from their point of view uh with west germany the easy way you know the just through this clause in the constitution and or whether they wanted to negotiate you know and come up with the new way of doing things taking the best of both systems and there were strong forces in in east germany Actually, the East German peace movement that was very instrumental in the fall of the wall was opposed to just being absorbed. Mm-hmm. But the people, you know, wanted the West German system as quickly as possible. <laughs> and so in, in free elections, that's the route they, they took. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was the wisest choice but um yeah (laughs) i understand why people who you know had to stand in line for oranges for decades (laughs) would want to have things be quick and easy yeah one of the other another podcast episode where i was in in cuba it's one of the ones in spanish and Mm -hmm. we're talking about the same thing as as like the Castros are sort of running out of power and they don't really have a plan on what's next and they're opening plane flights to the United States. And and there's just this fear that everyone's just going to be like, oh my gosh, internet and rock and roll and we just want all these things and we're just going to just leave Cuban history behind. And so a question that I asked her was like, what are some of the lessons that have been born out 
of the communist experiment that you might want to carry forward? Like, what are some of the lessons, you know, that, that might be useful? And I'm curious if you have a sense of what might have been some of the things that got lost in that absorption. Well, what got lost in that absorption is um, the sense of solidarity, you know? The West German social system obviously is much more developed than the American, <laughs> but much less developed than it was in the East, right? So Cuba is a good example of country that was very poor in a lot of ways, but had excellent education and excellent healthcare system for everybody. Yeah. Which is something we don't have in this country still. Yeah. So people were used to that and everybody had a roof over their head, right? So people were used to that and took that for granted. And, and what, what you take for granted, you don't really realize the value of it. Mm. And some of that got lost and also the sense of community and solidarity got lost. So I'll say that that was also the same answer that she gave was solidarity mm -hmm. and community. She was like, we have each other's back here. If someone's having a hard time, we know it and we're going to help them out. No one in this neighborhood's falling through the cracks. I'm thinking to tell you one more step in my journey of how I went from there to here. Yeah. Because the last phase we were talking about is me working with youth, right? Right. Eventually, I reached a point in my life where, number one, the funding for those kind of projects that was there initially after reunification was drying up. And number two, I was getting older and I didn't couldn't see myself traveling from village to village couch surfing all summer long <laughs> with <laughs> youth <laughs> for the rest of my life. So for the first time in my life, I actually made a conscious decision about what I want to do next. Like all my other careers, I kind of fell into. <laughs> but for the first time, I, I asked, I took a whole year to ask myself, what do I want to do with the rest of my precious life? work life especially and pretty soon pretty quickly it became clear to me I really want to do something in the field of aging because getting there myself soon I was aware that that is the next big challenge for society with boomers being so many of us mm -hmm. and the society really not being prepared for it and also being aware that the intergenerational conflicts are stronger right now at this time in history than they might have been before and then they may be in the future because there's such a big cultural shift between the f previous generation that was kind of socialized at times of scarcity and war and all that even if the war wasn't on american soil it's still you know, impacted that generation a lot. And and my generation, boomers, you know, who something happened in the 60s that really shifted, shifted the culture and the values and the lifestyle. And there's kind of this culture clash between the generation, my generation, that now typically is the caregiver generation and the previous generation that typically is the care-receiving generation. That really fascinated me. I thought there was a big need there, but I also was fascinated by that and I felt like I could take what I've learned on my life journey in the peace movement and in the intercultural work. I could take those skills into this work of consensus building one family at a time. It's awesome. One that's like a massive I mean it's one of the like as big a cultural divide almost as this east west one, you know, and like and and again because it's like 
you get raised in certain circumstances, you develop certain habits, you have different things. And when you were talking earlier, we were talking about like same, different, different, same, you know, how the the surprise of, wow, we're different or the surprise we have the same. And, and you were kind of bringing it back to like when we actually like pay attention, we're all just trying to meet the same needs in different ways, right? And so East Germany, West Germany, we're same needs. We want family. We want food. We want to do things. And we're going to meet those in different ways. We're more individualistic. We're more doing it together. Same thing, this generational thing. You have this like same same needs, same things. Maybe the needs shift a little bit over different times of life. But and in that, I hear like like nonviolent communication and just like some of the amazing wisdom that comes out of like mediation and Marshall Rosenberg's work. And when did you start learning about about that part of the work? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. That is a very significant part of the tools that I use in my toolbox, although I don't like to call it nonviolent communication. That term can be off-putting to people. I prefer to call it compassionate or empathic communication. Early on in, in my career as a mediator, right when I was starting Aging in Harmony, so I had already had you know, basic mediation training, advanced elder mediation training, about a couple years of volunteering as a mediator to get experience. But just when I was starting Aging in Harmony, my business, I met someone who was offering a specific kind of mediation training that was rooted in what he called nonviolent communication uh, based on Marshall Rosenberg's work. I went to a class to get additional tools in my toolbox for my work, but I got a life-transforming experience. So I kept going back for more, and then the following year, the trainers who were teaching this class, uh, John Kenyon and Ike Lassiter, uh, were starting a year-long intensive program. I, I joined them early on as an assistant because I had been to these Wednesday afternoon classes and I already was a mediator and I already had experience as a trainer. So I had the opportunity to uh, be part of this intensive year-long program for probably eight years. This, this program has been part of my life for 10 years and uh, it now is called Mediate Your Life. Uh, which I think is a fabulous name because it says exactly what it's all about. It's taking these compassionate communication tools and using them to mediate your life in three different ways, in three different contexts. Number one, in the way that we all think of the word mediation, meaning more or less neutral third party helping two, two or more people work out a conflict that can be informally in your own family or it can be professionally. The other context is mediating own con uh, conflicts in our own lives. In other words, if I have conflict with somebody, I can use my mediation skills to work it out with them. I can be me and the mediator at the same time, which is really hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is really hard to do. <laughs> and the third context is uh, mediating the battling voices in our own, our own heads, you know, when we are conflicted about something internally, working out those conflicts and bringing peace internally to ourselves. Um, the Mediate Your Life program uh, teaches skills and what they call maps, specific maps to be used 
in each of these contexts. And it's just so amazingly helpful to every part of my life, personally and professionally. Hello, Fractal friends. I, I hope that you're enjoying this episode and pardon the interruption. Um, if you are really liking this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, and come visit fractalfriends.us to get more information about each show and the guests. You can also sign up for my newsletter there, where I share information not just about the podcast, but also my work as a conflict transformation educator and catalyst. In addition to hosting this podcast, I give talks, teach workshops, give personal coaching, custom trainings for organizations. I work with individuals, companies, and communities that are trying to transform the important and difficult conversations into positive engines for growth. Over the years of working in conflict transformation, I've discovered three rules of conflict. One, it's not about what it's about. Two, those who are involved in the conflict must be involved in the solution. And three, the process for resolving a conflict is actually the same as the solution. Today, I'm going to explain the first rule of conflict. Conflict is usually not about what it's about. People tend to see conflict as a choice between one side's position versus the other's. The truth, however, is that both positions and the idea that they will need to be a single choice are an illusion. The positions people take in a conflict almost always are an attempt to get some other need met. The conflict is not about who takes out the trash, it's about respecting each other's time and contributions. The conflict is not about where the border is, it's about identity and history and access to resources. Transforming a conflict requires discovering what those underlying needs are. And once you can find the feelings and interests hidden beneath what people are asking for, then you can find solutions that work for everyone involved. If you want to learn more about my work and the other rules of conflict, or if you would like to talk about a conflict that you would like to transform, or if you would just like to improve your you or your company's skills around conflict, you can visit duncanautry.com. And there you can sign up for a free half-hour consultation. And again, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. I love the idea of, lo- of looking at that at the, all the different levels. And I call like the mediator kind of like the third perspective, right? That there's like my issue and your issue. And then if you look at it from a third perspective, you can see that this is a shared relationship that we're in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're the third party, that's like relatively easy. You can sort of see like, okay, I see your relationship and helping them find that, you know, because you can have the third perspective. Of course, that when you're in the conflict with someone, that's harder because it's like, how can I advocate for me and for us? You know, like that's and for you, you know, and and, and so I see how that one's challenging. But I love the idea of like when you're doing the mediation in yourself, that almost becomes like spiritual work. It seems like it's about finding your like consciousness that's the part of you that can see the part of you <laughs> that's struggling. Yeah. And there's a way that actually like that person or that voice or that self also the one that we bring to the mediations with other the conflicts with other yeah. people the part of ourself that i heard that's like you know you're listening to the your true self when it's all these c words like compassion curious um you know there's a confidence there's like a certain like oh yeah i can hold this challenge and i'm going to hold it with kindness it's it kind of gives you allows you to see yourself and so when you're doing the internal mediation is that like is there sort of like trying to find your mediator self? Yes. Yeah. Um, and actually, um, 
it's exactly the same in all three contexts. <laughs> so in the Mediate Your Life program, we actually practice with a three-chair model. Mm -hmm. Where if you mediate between two people, they sit in the chairs, right? And and in role plays, of course, you know somebody may work on their own issues, so they sit in one chair, and then a volunteer sits in the other chair and channels the other conflict party, and and the third party, you know, plays the mediator in the mediator chair, right? But then, if we work on the process where we're mediating our own conflict, we actually move back and forth between the mediator chair and the self chair. So mm -hmm. that yeah. it helps us connect with that higher self, as you called it. Yeah. And you're totally right. It, it, it is, in my view, it is a spiritual dimension to this. And there is a spiritual dimension to this. And then in the inner conflict, the exact same thing. We actually move through the chairs. We sit in one chair talking about what one inner voice says. And then in the other chair, when we talk about what the other inner voice says. And then in the mediator's chair, when we try to help those voices uh, understand each other. And sometimes there's more than two voices. Sometimes we th start out naming one voice and the other. And then we notice, oh, there's another one. And maybe there's even another one. <laughs> <laughs> so there can be a whole family of voices. <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the chairs and it's all just me oh yeah I, and it's funny i actually st stumbled into this once i was learning a trick about how to like um like do shadow work mm -hmm. and it was called three two one shadow and it's, i think it comes from like the integral theory kind of world but it, it's gestalt it's like all th people yeah. do this in all sorts of ways um uh and um right and so what the exercise was to like first like um, like I have two chairs is me and then my shadow voice. And I, first thing I'll do as like, as Duncan, I will objectively from a third person perspective, describe like, what is this person doing? Just kind of journal. Like mm -hmm. this is what they look like. This is their attitude. This is the kind of things that they say and stuff like that. And then the next piece was to then talk to it. Right. And so we have a second person conversation. So I start asking questions. The third step is to get to the first person where you like bring that voice into you. But in this conversation, I'm talking to this shadow voice of me, the part of me that's saying, like, basically being really critical of me. Mm -hmm. And and I'm like, why are you being so critical? And like, well, have you met this guy? And I'm like, what guy? And like, and then so we had to make another chair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that guy was worried about the super relaxed version of me, right? Mm -hmm. The part of me that's like, everything's fine. No problem. Everything's going to work out. And this guy's like, look, if you f listen to this guy's advice, you're not going to get anything done. So you have to listen to me. And so then I'm like, okay, now we're mediating. And it was just really fun to go like, oh, I'm a mediator now because mm -hmm. you guys need to get along because I can't have you fighting anymore. And um, But I love the idea yeah. that there could just be more and more, right? Yeah, it, and you're mentioning the shadow work. Ike and John have really created a way of integrating a lot of different bodies of work, and that is one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Marshall Rosenberg's work is one basic element but shadow work is another and different spiritual uh, traditions are part of it too and also um a lot of recent brain research about habit forming <laughs> and <laughs> you know we we tend to to just really put it colloquially i think we 
tend to think that we're rational, but we're really not. We basically all make gut decisions and rationalize them. And recent research shows that that's actually true. <laughs> so um, that totally resonates with me because, you know, what I help people do is help get in touch with their feelings and their gut, their intuition, and voice that. And then let the rational mind listen to that and get it and understand it. Because I think the reason why we call it butting heads is because conflicts are in the head and connections in the heart and in the gut. And so that's mm -hmm. really my intention is to get people out of their heads and into their hearts because that's where the understanding happens. Yeah. Isn't that also part of what you've learned about like one of the things you're teaching families when they're dealing with parents with like dementia and so forth is like, like let's like this head conversation is not going to work. And, yeah. and for me, this has been really profound. I would love to hear if you talk about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really good point. And, and I kind of discovered that kind of accidentally, you know, the more I learned, the, the more I practiced the mediate your life tools the more I realized this is really useful when you're dealing with people with you know, early to mid-stage dementia because at least half of my clients, somebody in the family is in that phase. That's when families get so desperate that they come to me, right? Because they're trying to tell mom or dad what they should be doing and mom or dad just says, no, you're wrong. I can do it myself. I'm fine. I don't need this. And they just bang their head against the wall. Um, Trying to give like all the reasons. Experience yeah. is so different than mom or dad's experience, right? And there's, you know, they just the 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 person in the early stages to mid stage of dementia really can't see it anymore. So you can't reason with them. So then, what do you do? They're not. Um, so incapacitated that they, you know, you can just take over, right? It's a gradual process. So in, that's the kind of gray area um, in the development of cognitive impairment that really the majority of people who come to me are facing in one form or another. And so number one, I can use this method in the mediation, if the senior uh, or the older adult or the parent or whoever it is um, is in the early stages and, and still able to and wants to participate in the decision-making process, I can use this to help them hear and understand each other from the heart. And that can lead to creative new solutions that everybody can live with. Mm -hmm. And and it's really amazing, you know, how the resistance diminishes and is overcome when the person with the cognitive impairment feels really heard and understood. Yeah. Then they feel safe, and then they're willing to hear and understood where the, you know, the adult children or whoever it is are coming from too. So that's one possibility. The other way that I use it is when the parent is already or whoever it is. Um, is already in the mid-stages of dementia and cannot really participate in a mediation process in a meaningful way anymore, 
I offer conflict coaching where I work with just one or more family members and teach them some of these tools so they can start talking to the person with dementia in a different way. And it is amazingly effective. And like, what does this different way look like? I mean, you know, I have a sense, you know, knowing about a little bit about nonviolent communication, but I imagine instead of trying to, yeah, again, talk to them about why you're not supposed to drive anymore, or give me the keys back, or why it makes a lot of sense for you to start eating more healthy or whatever it is. How would you get that sort of rational conversation into like something that's more of a heart-based one? Yeah, the driving transition is a great example because that's such a huge issue for a lot of families uh, because driving in this culture is the ultimate symbol of autonomy, right? And the older you get Mm -hmm. and the more you are aware that you're losing some of your faculties, whether it's hearing, whether it's vision, whether it's mobility, or whether it's, you know, forgetfulness. People are aware that they're losing it, right? And the more they're losing it, the more they're scared of becoming dependent, and autonomy becomes even more important than it is in this culture anyway. And so driving transition is an excellent example. I could just imagine this moment of being like, hey, this is why you shouldn't be doing this. And they're like, I don't think you understand. And I could picture like the the adult child of the parent almost getting urgently angry about trying to stop this. And then the person who's like not really understanding what's going on like that and the safety now is just dropped out. And now this person's yelling at them doesn't really make sense why. And the ability to get to like where they're going to listen to you is like hard, right? Right. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's very emotional because you know, the, the adult child is scared. Yeah. for mom or dad's safety and for the safety of others. You yeah. know, if they hit somebody and God forbid if they kill somebody, you know, that would be terrible for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so what I help them talk about is the underlying needs, the underlying longings. So mom or dad can say why driving is so important to them, how they're really scared of losing their independence and independence is really important to them. And they are willing to take the risk of maybe having fender bender or something because independence is just so important to them. And at the same time, the adult child or caregiver can can say about what's important to them, that it's about safety, that they are scared, and that maybe mom or dad is right, and they they still are perfectly capable of driving. But they are scared because maybe a neighbor just got into an accident mm-hmm. or somebody else, and they're just scared. And, and they maybe they live far away. They can't see uh, on a regular basis how well mom or dad can still drive. Or maybe they're so scared that they want to drive mom and dad around all the time and that doesn't really work for their job and their family so it really impacts their life that they're so scared because safety is just really so important for them and then if they hear that it's not about you it's about me right Mm -hmm. i am scared because safety is so important to me then they can come up with creative solutions for example there are concierge services that call uber and lyft for people who don't know how or don't like to use a smartphone. (laughs) So, so 
you know, the, the adult child can sign them up for the service. It goes on the kid's credit card. Mom or dad just calls this concierge where they know, you know, there's just a few people who answer the phone and they develop a relationship with them. And it's just like calling your daughter, you know, and they send a friend over, except it's an Uber or Lyft driver. And then the service stays on the phone until the person is actually in the car with the Uber or Lyft driver. Wow. That's amazing. So they, they, they like call like maybe on their cell phone because they know how to use it as a phone or maybe even call on their landline to the service. And then someone uses the app and helps them get to the, the, that's so amazing. And they don't have to give their credit card or anything because they're a member of the service and you know, it goes to whoever credit card, you know? No. Yeah. The parent, may not ever know how much it costs you know yeah if that's a concern right which frugality is also one of those values that the older generation holds highly whereas you know the boomers are much more willing to spend money i am a strong believer based on experience that there's always a creative solution that meets everybody's needs we just have to take the time to look for it on one hand, there's this acknowledgement of what the other person's real feelings are. Like, let me like actually understand why driving is important to you. Taking the time to really understand what their concerns are. Okay, you're feeling independence. Like, what does that mean? Oh, you want to be able to grocery store at nine o'clock at night? Okay, you know, or whatever that is. So you're like really trying to understand what the person just really needs, just really wants. And then also speaking from that place, speaking from these are my interests, this is what I'm concerned about. And then, of course, then that piece is like from this place of like, how can we like meet your need for independence and my need for safety or for people to be safe, then we can find a solution from there. And that's like kind of one of the core ideas of compassionate communication, right? right. Like that, like if we actually can communicate from like what's actually going on for us and it's not because it could seem like I'm taking away your keys. Like mm-hmm. that could be like the whole conversation and that's not doesn't yeah. meet anyone's needs. Uh, no, it causes so much pain. Yeah. So much pain, and it happens all the time. And one of the strengths of this process is that the parties never have to agree on the reality of the situation, right? Mom or dad can continue to live in their reality that they're perfectly capable of driving safely. And the daughter may have her own perspective. It's just about her fear for safety, right? And it's about mom's longing for independence. And if it's framed as this is a gift you're giving to your daughter or son rather than the other way around, it's not the daughter or the son giving the gift to of the concierge service to mom or dad because mom or dad doesn't need it, right? right. It's mom or dad giving the gift of peace of mind to the daughter or son. Mm. There's something so subtle about that shift, right? Because um, uh, it feels like that's when we're trying to think about trying to deal with most of the big conflicts in the world or any any conflict. It's like really recognizing like that thing that you're starting with, like we don't actually have to resolve that problem. Mm-hmm. You know, at any point in life, different people have different perspectives. Right. And trying to reconcile them usually doesn't work, you Mm -hmm. know, at any age. But when there's some cognitive impairment at work, of course, it doesn't work anymore at all. A presenter once in a presentation about dementia 
something she said that really resonated with me is reality is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's true at any point in life, but certainly at that point in life. So it's this like, is a way to yeah. have to totally not go there. Wow. It's kind of a gift in a certain way to, yeah. to be like, okay, so we're not actually come to a rational solution to this. That's not actually what we're trying to do. We're really just trying to find a solution that makes people get their feelings and their needs met. In this work and like working with these families, I wonder if you'd be willing to sort of share some place where it felt like, wow, well, they're never going to sort this out. How do they get there? And, you know, what's that look like? My favorite... Most moving, I shouldn't say favorite, it sounds so trivial. <laughs> My most moving experience as a mediator is, uh, was several years ago when a pair of siblings came to me like right at the end of their parent's life. I mean, it was clear that you know the parent was in the end stages of dementia and there were weeks left. And the children, there were actually three children and they had always been estranged. They had a difficult childhood, always been estranged. But the parent, in their wisdom, gave one parent, one of the adult children, the power of attorney for health care, and the other one the power of attorney for finances. <laughs> so over the course of the parent's illness, they had to start interacting. And they were doing it. Not very well, but they were doing it. And, um, and now they came to this point where it was clear the parent was going to pass really soon. And their goal was that they both could be together with the third sibling who was also estranged at the deathbed at the time of passing. And so two of them came to me. I talked to the third. The third was willing to talk to me and share their perspective, but they weren't willing to actually come work with me. So I had two of them at the table and I helped them figure out what was their goal and how that could work for both of them. And I helped them write an email using the compassionate communication tools to the third person to invite them to be in the room at time of passing too. And they actually did it. That was just one session that enabled them to do that and then we had two more sessions later one to plan the memorial and one to talk about how the two of them you know if and how the two of them wanted to have a relationship moving forward now that they didn't have to work together mm -hmm. anymore yeah but that was just really really moving to me do you remember what was some of the things in that compassionate communication email you know what some of the things that they were saying well they were just really talking about you know why this was important to them to make that possible for everybody and they didn't include any blame up until this point you know they would always say like you never come to visit you say we're making it impossible for you to visit but that's actually not true you could just call there anytime they were always blaming the other person so there's you know in in the compassion communication model there is no room for blame it's all just about me and what I'm feeling around what I see happening and how it impacts me and what I'm longing for. Mm -hmm. And then the request. And so based in that, they were able to phrase the request in such a way that the third sibling was able to do it. One of the like 
kind of ways I sort of synthesized this, and I think I kind of learned this from you, but is that the, like, when you're trying to use compassionate communication, like, and you're speaking, you know, from a place of compassionate communication, you're trying to communicate in a way that the other person can hear what you're saying, basically not triggering their defensiveness. Mm -hmm. And you're also trying to speak with saying things that kind of can't be argued about. And it's kind of a funny way to say it, but if you if I'm talking about my feelings, what I'm observing and what I want and, and making a request, this is kind of not, that's all mine, right? Exactly. No, if I'm saying like, you always do this thing. Now I've lost that person. Mm -hmm. Now we have something to argue about, right? Because now that's not what I'm thinking or that's not what I was thinking or feeling. Mm -hmm. There's something about like having that, that objective perspective and then really helping someone like, and it's possible the person might have read that and say, I still don't want to come. Like you don't, you, I think that's the first problem I see people when they're trying to use nonviolent communication or compassionate, compassionate communication is to see someone say, do this like perfect I statement sort of mm -hmm. saying what they want and what they need and then making the request. And then the person's like, Nope. I'm like, didn't you hear me say I needed that? And it's like, no, actually we're still in consent. You still, the other person still has their own choice. Right. But at least they're not, you're not feeling the fire, you know? Yeah. That, that points to the first sorry, fourth element or step uh, of compassionate communication, which is the request as opposed to demand. And uh, request means I ask for what I would like to happen with the attitude that I'm prepared to take no for an answer. Yeah. And that's very powerful. It's amazing if I can genuinely do that, mm. how much more likely it is that the other person finds it in their heart to say yes. Mm-hmm. There's also something that I've noticed. There's also might be like first a no, right? But then when they realize that you didn't freak out when they said no, then they feel safe enough to actually say yes. Like that there's a, there's like, it can be almost this lag, you know? It's like, can am I, am I going to be safe to say no here? And then, you know, yeah. nope. And then, then yeah. yeah. And they, they have a reason to say no, of course, you know? Um, every quest to me is not the end of the conversation it's the beginning of the conversation mm -hmm. so whatever the other person says in response if they say anything other than a clear 100 percent yes my response is going to be curiosity about the reasons for their no mm -hmm. because there is a need behind the no marshall rosenberg said behind every no there is a yes mm -hmm. they're saying yes to something else mm -hmm. so if i can be curious to find out what is their need, their underlying longing that they're saying yes to, then I can come up with a revised request that hopefully meets their needs as well as mine. Mm-hmm. What, how, what would be some tips on like that listening part, you know, because right, as you're saying, like the request is the beginning of the conversation and then now this person maybe doesn't have as many compassionate communication skills or they're now responding and and it seems like, okay, now it's time for me to be curious. I'm uh, just curious if you have any pointers on what like good listening tricks. It's a hard question for me because in my trainings, I always say, you know, there's two parts of the conversation, the speaking and the listening. And I think we all agree that the listening is more important, but it's also the harder part. 
So when I work with people, I always teach them the four elements in speaking first Mm -hmm. so that they can learn how to phrase things in an observational manner and express their feelings and express their underlying longings and make a request. And I think you need to learn that first in order to be able to listen from an empathic place. Mm -hmm. Because by listening, I don't just mean sitting there and taking in the words. I mean processing them and reflecting back what I heard through that lens. And so I can't really say how do you listen with empathy unless I've already taught you how to express with empathy. And really the first step to do that is to develop empathy for ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because I, I believe that it's impossible to be empathic with anybody else if we're not empathic with ourselves first. So that's actually the third way in which we can apply the four elements of compassionate communication. And I, in my conflict coaching work, I teach people that too. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure this was something also that I learned from you in like that first workshop I went to of yours. And it was good listening is basically helping the other person make a compassionate communication statement, even though they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So exactly. it's like, okay, so what, I, you're, what you're seeing or what you're perceiving is this. Like, it sounds like you're, what you're feeling is this. It sounds like you're trying to get this need met. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're trying to make this request. And by using that sort of those elements and sort of reflecting them back, you can sort of help the person, you know, even though they're saying, you do all these things and you always do that. And it's like, <laughs> okay, so you're really concerned about this kind of thing, right? You want to see more order or whatever. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and when we hear the word listening, we th- initially think, think that looks like saying nothing while the other person says whatever they're saying and not interrupt them and really Mm. take it in. And of course, that is part of listening. However, what I find is we can be the best listener ever and really get it. If all we say is, I understand or I get it, the other person may not be able to trust that that is true. That's why effective listening really is reflective listening. Right. Being able to say it back in a way that the other person feels heard and understood, maybe even on a deeper level than they said it in the first place. Yeah. That's, I totally agree with you on that one. It's a kind of rule of thumb when around mediation or is like, right, like, if someone's still saying what they're saying to you, like you need to say back to them. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I always like the thing that feels important is to like, like, you know, you're going to polish it a little bit as you like say it back to them. You kind of, you know, and what their reaction is like really important, right? Cause they'll either say, Oh my gosh, that's exactly it. And then now we just know that we've heard it because you said it. And now I've said it. And now we know that we, Mm-hmm. At least I've heard that. So like, that's not the concern anymore. Sometimes, though, people will say, no, that's not what I said. Maybe that is what they said. Maybe it's not. And and then they're going to about to clarify. And mm-hmm. so there's this great opportunity. And one of the things that, like, it's been such a surprise to me is, like, you can just do this, only reflect back what people are saying, and they love it. And, like, it feels like it's a trick or it's going to be manipulative or it's, like, trying to like it feels too um 
sometimes it can feel very like forced, you know, just to be reflecting back, but people really, really appreciate it. And, um, I've heard that there's, uh, this, uh, like a Vipassana meditation retreat that one of the teachers there, like that's all they do. They just, they just say back what the person said. And it's just like, that's all their spiritual teaching is just reflecting back. Wow. It's just like, that's Oh powerful. yeah. And yeah. In this culture, for sure, we all have an empathy deficit. So that's the first thing is to reflect back with empathy to get the person, give the person the, the sense that I'm really with you. Even if I understand, if, if I disagree 100%, I totally get it. And that's something that's hard to learn, you know, that saying back what I heard the person say and letting them know that I really get it is not the same as agreeing. Mm-hmm. People are afraid to do that sometimes because they're afraid that it implies they're agreeing, but it doesn't. So there's a question that I ask most of the guests on the show. You know, basically, like, you, Catherine Address, and, like, all this, like, rich, like, life journey and experience that you have and all these lessons you've learned. What's something that you find that's useful in your life that you might invite other people to pay attention to as they're trying to, like, make better world and peace with their families and such? I've noticed. I mean, you touched on this a little bit earlier that um, there is a spiritual aspect to this. And I've noticed that, at least in the Bay Area, at least half of the mediators I have met also have a regular meditation practice. To me, that's really a building block for everything I do, both in terms of my personal life and my professional life. I just think finding some form of meditation that works for you, whoever you are mm-hmm. out there, right. <laughs> um, is a great first step towards creating inner peace and outer peace in whichever way you would like to, whether it's within your family or at work or you know, in the world. Hmm. Katharina, if people want to find out more about you or get in touch with you or help you with their family and their, and their aging questions, how they, would they do that? Well, if you're an online person, the easiest way is to just go to my website, aginginharmony.com, and there is a let's stay in touch button that you can click on and you can you know, shoot me an email that way. Or you can just give me a call. 510-356-7830. I'm a phone person, so you're welcome to call me, and uh, I enjoy connecting verbally like that. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and for all the wonderful things you taught me both today and before. Thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you again for listening to this episode of Fractal Friends with Katharina Dress. You can find more content, links, and resources about Katharina's work, as well as information about other episodes at fractalfriends.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please spe- If you enjoy listening to this conversation, please spread the word of Fractal Friends by sharing this episode with your family or one of your friends. To wrap us up, I'm really happy to share this song with you. It's from the musician named Creature. That's spelled K-R-3-T-U-R-E. And the song is called Watch It Grow. This is one of my absolute favorite songs these days, and I'm honored to have permission to share it with you. We're growing peace in the world, y'all. So let's give it time, let's give it space, and let's watch it grow. Thank you for listening to Fractal Friends. Have a nice day. And remember, we all have a role to play in the whole. Save.